Hey there, thanks for joining us here at Compass Church, where we are making God accessible to everyone. If you have any questions or want to learn more about us as a church, head over to our website, compassbn.com. We hope this inspires you and gives you practical ways to live out your faith. Enjoy the message. Well, hey, good morning, and thank you for joining me again today. My daughter, Cameron, she works at Chick-fil-A, and because she works there, we eat Chick-fil-A a lot. And this week, because we ate Chick-fil-A before we left town, and we ate Chick-fil-A on the road, and we ate Chick-fil-A when we got here, I, I realized something. Um, and for me, this something is huge. I mean, this is like life-shattering. This changes everything for me. And here's what I realized. Every time I order at Chick-fil-A, and I always make the same order, but every time I order at Chick-fil-A, the person who's taking my order says, oh, perfect. And then, and, and it's not just when they take my order, I realize it goes on beyond that because they'll be like, do you want any sauces with that? Oh, perfect. Is there anything you want to drink with that? Mm, perfect. And, and once I noticed this, I realized that I have single-handedly created the perfect Chick-fil-A order. That means this, every other person who ever orders Chick-fil-A is ordering something that is to a degree less perfect than mine. And, and I realize that no matter where I go nationwide in Chick-fil-A, whether it's in town, whether it's on the road or in another city, they always recognize the perfection of my order because everywhere I go, they say, hmm, perfect. Now, when I told Terry about this, she burst my bubble a little bit because she said, I don't know if this is true or not, but she said that they say perfect to everyone, no matter what they order. So like I could order a chicken sandwich and I could ask them to wipe the chicken patty on the bottom of their shoe before they put it on their bun. And they would say, mm, that's perfect. And I guess that makes sense because we, we use language to communicate things um, in the context in which they're communicated. We, we, we use language to communicate things to be understood in the context, but they may not be exactly true. So perfect doesn't necessarily mean that I have mastered the art of the Chick-fil-A order as much as it means that they are trying to tell me, I understand what you want. I get your order. Whatever you ask for is great. And so really in that context, it maybe doesn't mean that I'm perfect, but it's a word that works in context, even if it isn't meant to be taken literally. Now, we use statements like this and analogies all the time. I mean, we use them to describe people as well. I mean, has, has anybody ever had someone tell them that you are so sweet? Oh, you are just, you're the sweetest. You're so sweet. Now, they are not saying, ooh, I licked your arm and you just taste like cotton candy. You are delicious. No, what they're saying in context is that your personality shares the qualities of things that are very sweet and delicious. I'm describing your personality. When somebody says, oh man, you are the bomb, they are not saying that you are a weapon of warfare designed for mass murder to blow up and kill people. What they are saying is, is that you are so awesome that your awesomeness explodes. You are, you are full of awesomeness, not shrapnel. It's language that's used to communicate something in context. And Jesus used language like this all the time. In fact, Jesus used language like this to describe his followers in Matthew 5, 13 through 14. And in our message series, Salt and Light, this is exactly what we're talking about, because Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. 
Now, Jesus may not be saying that you are literal salt to be sprinkled on food or that you are a light bulb, but he's talking about the qualities of the people who are going to follow him. And, and last week, we took a big picture view of this, of these statements that Jesus made. And we talked about how at its heart that Jesus is talking about influence, that his followers, the followers of Jesus will actively influence their world. And if you and I are followers of Jesus, that we will influence our world. It's just who we are. And then over the next two weeks, um, what I want to do is I want to drill down into these two analogies that Jesus used of salt and light um, to break down how we influence the world by being like salt and light. If it's not literal, if I'm not literally salt and a salt shaker, what are the qualities of salt in me that Jesus wants to see influence the world? And and here's the thing, there are, there are a lot of takes on what Jesus meant when he called us salt and light. But I think the best way to understand what he meant by using these things is, especially when Jesus's words are a little tough to understand, is to look through the lenses of how Jesus lived. And now, this is always a good practice. Whenever you are unsure about something that Jesus said, you can always find clarity by examining how Jesus lived that out. And that's what I want to do today, because when it comes to Jesus's ministry on earth, Jesus did two main things that I think in the way he lived are important for us to grasp. Matthew 4, 23, it says that in summary, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. In this kind of summary of Jesus's ministry, we see really two things. We see that Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and that Jesus healed people. He announced God's new spiritual plan, and then he worked to meet the people's physical needs. I think that a good way to describe these two things, uh, really for our purposes, would be to describe them as evangelism and justice. Now, I know that right out of the gate, that may create some tension for some people or some dissonance for some people, because especially Christians, because we don't often see these things going together. In fact, I think that a lot of Christians see justice and evangelism as at conflict with each other, because there are those, there are those who believe that personal salvation is the solution to the sin problem in the world. And then there are those who believe that actively addressing the negative consequences of sin in people's lives is the solution to the sin problem in the world. Evangelism and justice. But then Jesus comes along and and he does both. He smashes them together when he preaches the kingdom of God to reach a person's soul and he heals people to reach and address their physical personal needs. He invited people into a life where he would address sin at its spiritual root and deal with the ongoing consequences of sin, evangelism and justice. And it's in the context of these two things, these two main things that Jesus did in his ministry, these two main things he lived out, that we are, I think, are going to find the ways that we will influence the world as salt and as light. And next week, we're going to talk about our influence as light, which I believe really kind of represents the evangelism piece of Jesus's ministry. But today, we're going to talk about our influence as salt, which is justice. Now, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Now, we talked about the last 
part of that verse last week. Today, I want to just concentrate on this. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. It's no surprise that there are a lot of interpretations about Jesus, what Jesus meant by salt, because salt has a lot of qualities. And there are a lot of interpretations about what um, Jesus meant by that. Because all of these qualities would have been familiar to Jesus's hearers at the time, because salt was a basic necessity of life back then. In fact, there is a there's a Greek philosopher uh, and writer back then named Pliny the Elder, and he said this in the first century. He said, "Nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine." Now, sunshine was free, but salt. Salt had real value back then. I mean, salt was so valuable that it was often used as currency. At times, Roman soldiers would actually be paid in salt. Our word salary that we use today stems from the root Greek word for salt. Salt was important. Salt was such a big deal in people's lives that it, it, was, it was related to trade and compensation and currency. And, and while salt was used to flavor food, I mean, we're very familiar with that, it was, and it was also noted for its purity, the key value of salt back then was found in its ability to preserve food. Because before there was any refrigeration, salt was the key way to keep food from going bad, specifically to keep meat from rotting. The way you did it was you would cover it in salt. Because what salt would do is salt would absorb um, the moisture out of the, the molecules of the meat. And in absorbing the moisture, it would absorb bacteria and the things that cause the meat to rot. And therefore it would preserve it so that people could have it for a long time or they could travel with it. Salt literally slowed and stopped the decay and corruption in meat. And because of this, salt was a necessity in life. And Jesus said that his followers were the salt of the earth. And I believe that his listeners would have heard from his words and seen from his actions that his followers, that Jesus's followers, like salt, would work to preserve the earth. That being like salt, that Jesus's followers would work to stop the corruption and decay that is caused by sin and work to bring healing in people's lives. And like the, the main point today would just be this, is that followers of Jesus have a responsibility to slow and stop the decay of injustice. Now, I know over the last several weeks, we've talked about Jesus's expectation that people in his kingdom would work, work for and pursue justice. We've talked about it a couple times. And listen, don't blame me. I mean, we just, we're working through the book of Matthew. Like, blame Jesus for saying these things and Matthew for writing them in this order. But I believe that they're there for a reason. And, and, and I believe that this is not, this isn't just Jesus's words, the idea that he has an expectation that his people will work for justice. This is a thread that runs all throughout the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. Psalm 82, three through four, it says this, give justice to the poor and the orphan, uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute, rescue the poor and helpless, deliver them from the grasp of evil people. You could simplify that and really just say, help those who are in need and cannot help themselves. Stand with the oppressed. Stand with the poor. When, when this says, deliver them from the grasp of evil people, I really think it might be more helpful for us to think about that a little, little differently because sometimes it's hard and it feels judgmental to label someone as an evil person. I think it might be helpful for us to look at it as saying, 
deliver them from the effects of evil and the consequences of sin in the world. See, justice is simply about making right what is wrong. Justice is a matter of of setting setting right what is broke broken, correcting imbalances, restoring restoring things that have been damaged by sin. Sin broke the world. It broke our systems, it broke our bodies, it broke uh, parts of our spirits. Sin damaged things, and with sin came poverty and, and abuse and disease and oppression. When Jesus healed people, he was putting right what sin had broken. He was addressing the tangible effects that the consequences of sin were having in people's lives and in the world. Jesus, when he healed people, was delivering people from the consequences of evil. And and what's cool is like this is not just for their good. It was, but like when we do this, when Jesus did it, it delights God. Micah 6, verse 6, Micah writes this. He says, what shall I come with before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? He's describing the, the sacrifices that people offered to their gods back then and, and, and the ritual sacrifice that the Jewish people were called to offer God. He continues, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Should I suffer to make up for my sin? Should I do all of these things to somehow make God happy? And then he says this, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What's the thing? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Of all the things that we could bring God in worship, the one thing that he requires more than anything is for us to act justly and to love mercy as we walk with him. He desires that we demonstrate his love and his grace and his mercy in tangible ways to people who are hurting in this world, even as he demonstrates it to us. Our God is a God of justice, and he calls his followers to be men and women of justice who stand against injustice and fight its effects anywhere that it's present. And I recognize that this is tough for some Christians. And let me tell you why. Okay, I grew up in church. I get this. Somewhere in the last, you know, 100, 150 years or so, social justice was separated from the life of the church, and it was replaced with a total focus on personal salvation. And what that means is this, is that there was a point in the history of the church in America where where we did do justice where the church was leading in abolishing slavery, where the church was leading in, in taking care of orphans and widows that these were and, and poverty, that this these were activities the church was involved in. But at some point, the church decided to put a total focus on personal salvation as the solution to the problems of the world. It means this, it means things like poverty and racism and war and addiction, that the church began to believe that all of these things can only be fixed when someone personally gives their life to Jesus and accepts Jesus as their savior. And because they believe these things can only be fixed through personal salvation, therefore dealing with 
the effects of sin in people's lives. So dealing with poverty, addiction, oppression, addiction, trying to deal with those things through social justice would neither be effective, nor would it be the responsibility of the church. Because now the responsibility of the church is just to focus on personal salvation. And while personal salvation is crucially important, Jesus didn't live that way. And neither did his first century followers. Check this out. James uh, was was Jesus's literal brother. And James was one of the key leaders in the first century church. And the letter that James wrote to the churches at that time is actually the oldest thing that we have in the New Testament. So it's the closest snapshot to how the first century church actually lived and did things. And look what he says in James 2.15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? I think if James were writing this to us today, if he were making a Facebook post, he would say something like, if one of you says, hey, I'll be praying for you, but does nothing to meet a person's physical needs, what good is it? What good is it to pray for someone's personal salvation and do nothing about their tangible, felt, physical needs. James says it's no good. I think sometimes we as Christians misunderstand how it is that God wants us to influence the world. We sometimes think that our job is to defeat sin, that our job is to stop people from doing sinful things, to reset the morality of the world. And and so imagine that sin is like a bunch of thorn bushes, right? We can sometimes think that our job is to root out and hack away those thorn bushes, to to pull them out of the ground, and to destroy them. But the problem with this is that we can't do it. If we could have rooted out, hacked out, and defeated sin, then we wouldn't have needed Jesus to die on the cross. The very fact that Jesus had to deal with the sin in our lives shows us that that job is out of our reach. Jesus never asks us to change the morality of the world. He doesn't try, he doesn't ask us to try and change government legislation to, to force people to live and to do the right things. Our mission, our mission is something totally different. See, Jesus doesn't ask us to hack out the thorn bushes of sin. Jesus asks us, to remove the thorns from the hands of those people who've been hurt by sin. Our mission is not to defeat sin in the world. That was was Jesus's mission. He already did that. Our mission is to live out the kingdom of God now until the kingdom of God is perfect someday then. Our mission is is to stop and to halt the corrupting consequences of the sin that's in our world until Jesus wipes them out completely. Our struggle is not to stop the sin in the world. Our struggle is to slow and to stop its decaying and corrupting effects. James again describes it this way in James 1.27, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. We are at an inflection point, I think, in America because our culture is putting a premium on justice. And more and more, our culture is calling out 
for justice in the area of race, in the area of poverty, human trafficking, foster care, inequality, hunger, oppression. Our culture is, is, is just seeking justice. And there should be no group of people more equipped and more eager to step into these areas of injustice than the church is. Because these are the very things that God desires of us. These are the very things that Micah says in Micah 6 that God requires of us to walk justly and to love mercy. Follower of Jesus, Jesus said that you are the salt of, of the earth. You are his agent to stop the decay and the corruption of sin and its effects in our world. Yes, we pray for our world. Yes, we work for the personal salvation of people, but we work to remove the thorns of sin that are causing people pain. And we're called to this. We're called to this ministry of healing in the ways that he has equipped us to. And so I would just, I would just ask you this as a wrap up. For you, what, what is the injustice that you see most? Where would God be leading you to make a difference? Does God break your heart over the, the issue of racial injustice in our country? Does, does your heart break for the injustice that the immigrants face who are fleeing war and poverty and violence in their own co countries? And is God calling you to care for them? Is it supporting foster care or advo advocating for the homeless in our own community? Is the area of injustice that, that you see that breaks your heart? Is it, is it human trafficking around the globe? Whatever area it is, God created us for this. You are salt. You are the salt of the earth. He made you to stop and slow the corruption and decay caused by the effects of sin in our world. God has called you to give justice to the poor and to the orphan, to uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute, to rescue the poor and helpless, and to deliver them out of the grasp of evil. He's called us to live like Jesus. He's called us to be like him. You are the salt of the earth. Let's influence our world by standing up and fighting the corrupting influences and effects and consequences of sin in the people around us who are hurting from it. Thanks again for joining us today. If you want to learn more about us as a church, get connected, need prayer, or anything else at all, head over to our website, compassbn.com.